Presenting Focus on Truth, the Bible teaching ministry of Chuck Bradshaw. Focus on Truth is a non-denominational evangelical Christian ministry to the marketplace. Focus on Truth is dedicated to proclaiming the gospel of the free grace of God and helping people understand the practical relevance of the Bible. Join now with Chuck as together we focus on the truth of God's Word. Good morning. This is our third in our series that I've entitled, It is Finished. And today we're talking about the centrality of the cross in Jesus' life. Um, As you'll recall, the term, it is finished, is one word in the Greek language, to telestai. And it's a cry of accomplishment. It means it is finished. Uh, It is used, uh, it was used... For example, to mean uh, by merchants that a debt had been paid in full. Uh, It could also mean that a a sentence had been carried out and the the debt of the prisoner had been paid in full and he he or she was now free to go. But it's a cry of accomplishment. Jesus had actually accomplished something when he cried this out. It's the sixth of seven sayings by Jesus from the cross. You'll recall that there is a prophetic context. We talked about that in our last session um, from the Old Testament. There were unfolding promises of a Redeemer throughout the Old Testament from Genesis all the way to Matthew. It began with Genesis chapter 3, verse 15 which is not known as the Proto-Evangelium. And I will just read that for you from Genesis 3.15. And I will put enmity between you. Uh, remember at this point God was speaking to the serpent, uh, actually to the uh, evil one who was using the serpent. Um, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will will strike his heel. That's a... If that's all we had, we wouldn't know exactly how to, what to make of all of that. But the truth is, is that this, that's the first mention of the gospel in the Bible, and it's the idea that one day a redeemer, the redeemer, would come, and when he did, he would crush the head of the serpent. He would uh, he would bring to nothing uh, the power of the enemy, and the enemy would strike at his heel. But uh, it would be the redeemer who would ultimately. Uh, win the win that conflict, and notice from Malachi chapter three verse one where he says, "See, I will, uh, God speaks and says, See, I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. Then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to His temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come, says the Lord Almighty. And certainly that's a reference to the coming of the Lord Jesus. And of course the Old Testament ends with the, uh, with the book of Malachi. But what I want us to look at today is uh, is the uh, is this sacrifice that Jesus made on the cross for his people. Uh, I want us to realize that it was always the central mission. It was always in the forefront of Jesus' mind. For as far back as uh, the time he could, uh, I suppose he could. Uh, uh, think reasonably. Uh, after all, he was a baby, and so he developed the same way that other babies uh, develop as well. Uh, but in Mark chapter 10, verse 45, 
Jesus said this, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. And uh, if you're wondering what that many is all about, uh, we will talk about that specifically in the last session about uh, uh, for whom did Christ die. Let's begin by looking at the cross and the early years. Uh, we talked about this uh, not too long ago when we did our Bible study around Christmas time. But I want us to look <clears throat> at what other people said about the infant, the Lord Jesus, uh, what their perspective on Him was. We want to look at the Magi and we want to look at Simeon and Anna, both of whom were in the temple when Jesus was 40 days old. When uh, when uh, Mary and Joseph brought Jesus in for the uh, for uh, Mary's purification after having given childbirth, and to dedicate uh, Jesus uh, because he was her firstborn son. So look at Matthew chapter two verses ten and eleven. It says, "When they and the they there refers to the Magi saw the star, uh, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy." This is after they had arrived in Jerusalem. Remember, uh, and we talked about this at length uh, when we did our Christmas study. But uh, in spite of the fact that we sing, "We three kings of Orient are," um, and we talk about following the star, when the Magi set out from the east. Um, they were not following a star. If they were following a star, the star would have led them to Bethlehem. But they made their way to Jerusalem, and I'm sure they went there because that was the capital of, uh, of Judea, and that's where they expected to find the, uh, the new infant king would be at the capital. They arrived there, and when they uh, began to make inquiries, uh, Remember, Herod asked his advisors, well, what's the deal? And they said, oh, we know exactly where the Messiah is to be born, and that is he was to be born in uh, in Bethlehem, just about four or five miles from here. And so it's at that point that the star reappears, what, what we often call the Christmas star, the, the star that perhaps these Magi had seen a year, maybe two years earlier uh, uh, over in the east, and that was one of the things that... Uh, that stirred them up to make this trip to Jerusalem. But it says, When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw, notice it's not in a stable anymore, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. That's, that's a very important term. Uh, most kings didn't get worshipped, but uh, there were a few who thought they were gods, like Pharaoh. But uh, in this case, they fell down and worshipped him, and then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. Remember in the uh, again in the song, We Three Kings, uh, it says, Glorious now, behold him arise, King and God and sacrifice. And that's what those, uh, that's what those gifts represented. The gold represented the fact that he was deity uh, and that he was king. And the frankincense um, represented the fact that he would, uh, would be the great high priest of his people, uh, the one who would uh, and would 
not only be the sacrifice, but would offer the sacrifice. And the myrrh certainly had to do with the uh, the sacrifice itself, his death, because myrrh was, uh, as you'll recall, um, was used in the preparation of, uh, of bodies before they were buried. It certainly was in the uh, in the life of Jesus. So right there, we see even during Jesus' infancy, uh, from the perspective of the Magi, that they were acknowledging uh, that certainly that this was a very special child. Not only was he God in human flesh, not only was he the promised King, not only was he the Redeemer and would one day be the great High Priest but also he himself would have to die. He was the sacrifice, and that's the reason for the myrrh. Now let's look at the incident from Luke chapter 2 that involves Simeon and Anna. It says, uh, and this is when Jesus was 40 days old. And incidentally, uh, the Magi would have come after uh, after what we're about to read. Jesus was certainly more than 40 days old because remember when uh, Mary and Joseph came to the temple when Jesus was 40 days old that, uh, that they offered two turtle doves. That was an offering of poor people. Uh, you were supposed to, for purification after childbirth, you were supposed to offer um, a large animal as well as a, uh, a turtle dove or a, or a pigeon. And if you could not afford that, then you could offer two turtle doves or two pigeons. And that, of course, is what Mary and Joseph offered, which tells us that they were poor at the time if the Magi had arrived prior to that 40 days, they would have had gold and incense and myrrh, all of which were very valuable and very expensive uh, things to have, and they could have afforded the normal type of sacrifice. So we're uh, we're a little bit out of our chronology here, but uh, just thought I'd mention that, although we... I probably belabored it uh, when we talked and had our Christmas study. Alright, forty at 40 days old, Luke chapter 2, verse 25 and following. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ, or Messiah. And he came in the Spirit into the temple. That's, you remember that's where Joseph and Mary are with the baby Jesus to dedicate him and for them to pay for purification. He... Uh, Simeon took him, Jesus, up in his arms and blessed God and said this, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. My eyes have seen your salvation. Notice salvation is not in a program. It is in a person. As Simeon held that baby, he said, Lord, you can take me on home now because now I have seen your salvation. Now obviously Jesus has got... 30 plus years to go before he makes that uh, ultimate sacrifice that he makes. But Simeon recognizes that through the uh, through the Spirit of God. Furthermore, it says, uh, and notice also, and this must have been a real eye-opener for Joseph and Mary, because not only was, uh, you remember in, in Matthew's Gospel, it said uh, the, the angel told Joseph, said, you shall name him Jesus because he will save his people. 
people from their sins. And so the, the, uh, many people read that and say, well, he shall save his people from their sins. So it must be talking about the Israelites. Well, it is talking about uh, Israelites in terms of, uh, of those who would, uh, would receive him as Lord and Savior. But also it referred to Gentiles. And clearly that's what Simeon says here, that he is a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. So uh, Jesus is the only Savior that there is, whether you are a Jew or a Gentile. The only way to be saved is through faith in Jesus Christ alone. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Don't ever forget that. Uh, and then the, the last verse there says, uh, and there was a prophetess, Anna, and coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and speak of Him, that is this child, Jesus, speak of Him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. So she acknowledges, uh, and, and this woman's in her 80s as I recall, she acknowledges that this indeed is the Redeemer. This is the one that will bring salvation to all. And of course that would happen at the cross. So we see even from his infancy, uh, according to the perspective of others, that the cross was always central in Jesus' life. Now, uh, we don't have any information about what happened, what was going on in Jesus' life between this uh, this time when he was dedicated at forty days, and except for the visit of the Magi, and we're not sure about uh, we're not sure about uh, the date on that. He's probably somewhere between. Oh, a year and two years old at the time, but we're just not given any, you know, any particular uh, specifics on that. But we are the next specifics that we're given are, are all the way up at age twelve, and there is a, a perspective there uh, that we see from rabbis and parents um, and from Jesus Himself. So let's just look at that uh, uh, briefly for a minute um, in Luke chapter two. Verses 41 and following, it says, Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the Feast of the Passover. Remember, males were required to go uh, three times a year to Jerusalem uh, for certain feasts. And among those feasts was the Feast of Passover. The other was the Feast of Pentecost. And then the other was the Feast of Tabernacles. And you were to, uh, you were to celebrate it only there in, uh, in Jerusalem. And so, uh, so they, they were godly people. And uh, they went every year to the Feast of the Passover. And when He, Jesus, was 12 years old, they went up according to custom. And when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. They returned to Jerusalem searching for Him, and after three days they found Him in the temple. You have to wonder why it took them so long to find Him, but then Jerusalem was a big place, and of course the uh, the city was just bedlam uh, any time around Passover uh, because so many people were there. So I, I guess that would account for why it took so long to find him. But they found him in the temple, and when his parents saw him, noticed they were astonished. 
And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. Now, of course, the word father there is referring to his essentially his stepfather to, to Joseph. And, said, and he said to them, Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my Father's house? Remember the King James Version translates that uh, anyway. Did you not know that I must be about my Father's business? So even at age 12, Jesus understood was understanding some things about His mission. Now, to the extent that He understood, we, we don't know but simply because the Bible just doesn't tell us that. But it is interesting to note that the rabbis were amazed uh, when you read this the rabbis were amazed at, at the questions that he posed and at the answers to their questions that he gave uh, here the parents are astonished um, it says uh, it says in and also in Luke chapter 2 verses uh 48 through 50 when his parents saw him they were astonished he said to them why were you looking for me didn't you know that I must be in my father's house or about my father's business and they did notice this they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them and you have to wonder why why, why didn't they understand and the reason I pose that question is because now Jesus is 12 years old at this point. But 12 years earlier, or 12 years, 9 months earlier, uh, when, uh, when the angel appeared to Mary and when the angel appeared to Joseph in a dream, um, it was clear that this, this child that was to be born uh, to Mary was none other than the Son of God. And he was going to save his people from their sins, and yet it seems like over the twelve years they're just, uh, you know, I guess I guess time just sort of has that effect on us in in some way. But anyway, it says they didn't understand that he spoke uh, the saying that he spoke to them that that he had to be about his father's business. Um, but again, the the point I'm making is that Jesus certainly recognized that the Father had a purpose for him and he was determined to fulfill that purpose. Uh, in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 4 and following, it says that God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him in love. He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. That's in, the, in Christ. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. So we see Jesus speaking of God as Father, there's an awareness on his part and a commitment on his part to the purpose and the mission of his Father. Now, did Jesus understand that he was going to go to the cross at the time? I, I, I don't know. Uh, obviously, if he's able to amaze the rabbis, uh, and he was uh, obviously very familiar, beginning to be very familiar, uh, if not very familiar already, with the Scriptures, uh, it may be that the Father Father had revealed that to him. There's just no way of knowing. But the point I'm making here is that Jesus, from the from the 
time that we uh, first see any cognizance on his part, and that's at age 12, obviously, uh, there is a commitment on his part to do the will of the Father. Now the the ministry years, uh, it's it's much easier to see. And uh, let's just let's talk about the, the cross and the ministry years. Uh, by way of preparation, certainly he was baptized by John. Now that's not the John who was the disciple. That's the other John who was his. Uh, I guess he'd be his second cousin, who was about six months older than he was. But John recognized Jesus for who he was. Notice it says in John chapter 1, verse 29 and 30, the next day he, John, saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now, how did lambs um, cover over sin in the days of the law of Moses in the Old Covenant? There was only one way, and that's by dying. So John certainly realized that this is the one who would come and his whole purpose in coming was for to uh, was to die for the sins of his people. This is, he goes on to say, "This is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who ranks before me." Now, why would he rank before him? Well, because he's God in human flesh. Because he was before me. In other words, uh, this person that I baptized, uh, even though I'm six months older than he is, he existed before I ever came into being. In other words, Jesus is all. Always, has always existed. He's always been God. Uh, and He stepped out of eternity into time and space and took on our humanity uh, and became uh, vulnerable and, and, and certainly uh, to... And faced all the things that you and I faced, hunger, thirst, uh, temptation, uh, ridicule, rejection, everything we can think of. Uh, And of course, that's one of the things that makes him such a great high priest is because uh, when we come to the throne of grace to obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need, uh, our great high priest who lives to intercede for us and to uh, uh, serve as our advocate at the right hand of the Father. He is one who knows what it means to be human. He knows what it means to struggle with the things that with which we struggle. So that's uh, uh, that's marvelous to think about that. Uh, in Matthew chapter three, verses uh, thirteen and following, it says, "Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him, and John would have prevented him, saying, "I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me?" But Jesus answered him, "Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness." And then John consented. So again, you see Jesus identifying with the human race. Uh, he understands us again that's and I hate to belabor it but it's worth belaboring that is he is our great high priest we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with us because he was in all points uh, tempted and tested as we are yet without sin he understands what we're going through and uh, that's 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 why he is such a fitting high priest for us he is fully God and fully man he understands completely. Uh, 
Notice what it says in uh, in John chapter two, and you begin to see in these early years, in these early ministry moments, that uh, Jesus was certainly aware. Uh, at least at this point, he's a, he is aware of exactly where he's going, of what he is to do, and that that he will be that he is facing the cross. And we see that even as early as uh, his first miracle there at Cana of Galilee. It says in John two on the third day there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And he said to her, woman, what does that have to do with me? Now, when he says woman, that's not a demeaning kind of term. He's not putting down his mother. That was a common term that was, uh, that was used in that day. But notice the last part of that. The last part of that sentence, verse 4. He says, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. And you're going to see that phrase or something like that phrase repeated constantly throughout the Gospels until there is a point right after Caesarea Philippi and uh, where all of a sudden that will begin to change. Uh, notice also in Luke chapter 4 uh, when Jesus was preaching in His own hometown of Nazareth. Remember that... <clears throat> Uh, he had gone to the gone to the synagogue, and uh, they had handed him the scroll. And he opened it to Isaiah chapter sixty-one, which is a messianic prophecy. And he began to read. And uh, as when he finished reading, he rolled it up and handed it back to the attendant. And he said, "Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your ears." And uh, and they just thought, "Oh, this is just wonderful." Uh, and uh, then he began to talk about uh, faith issues. He said, "You know, there were there were a lot of, uh, of widows in the days of Elijah. There were a lot of widows in Israel, but uh, God only sent sent Elijah only to a widow in Zarephath. That was a Gentile area, and it wasn't too far away from Galilee, incidentally." And uh, and then he said, and then in the days of Elisha, he said there were lepers all over Israel, but God didn't cleanse any of them. What He did was He cleansed Naaman, and Naaman was a Syrian. He was a Gentile also. Well, at this point, those people just went ballistic because they put two and two together. So you you mean that that the uh, that the Messiah is coming and he is not only going to redeem people from Israel, but he is going to redeem Gentiles as well. You have got to be kidding! And they took Jesus out to the precipice of of a hill uh, there in Nazareth and were getting ready to throw him over the over the cliff. Notice it says in Luke chapter four verse twenty. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath, and they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. And then notice that that, that last sentence, that last verse. But passing through their midst, he went away. Now how do you explain that? 
Well, you explain it the same with the same passage that we just read from John chapter 4. My hour has not yet come. There was no way on this green earth that Jesus could die a moment before His time. But there was also no way on this earth that He was going to delay His time. And we'll see that in, uh, in, just, a, in just a bit as we continue. The, the watershed moment in the mini, in the public ministry of Jesus was at Caesarea Philippi, um, there at Mount Hermon, uh, where he makes his first really unambiguous statement regarding his suffering and death and resurrection. And uh, beginning there and, and subsequent to that, he just begins to say it over and over and over. It's just uh, stated repeatedly. But let's look at that uh, for just a moment in Mark chapter 8. It says, And Jesus went on with His disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, He asked His disciples, Who do people say that I am? And they told Him, John the Baptist, which is sort of a dumb answer, isn't it? Because John the Baptist and he were contemporaries, so apparently the people who answered that way just were clueless anyhow. Others say, Elijah... And others, one of the prophets. Notice they didn't say anything bad. There were a lot of things being said bad about Jesus, but the disciples didn't mention any of those things. And he asked them, But who do you say that I am? And Peter, who was always ready with an answer, and very often the spokesman for the group, and this uh, usually, you know, Peter would just, when he opened his mouth, it was to swap feet. But this time he got it right. First time, Peter answered him, You are the Christ. Who, who do I say that you are, Jesus? I say that you are the Christ. And then it says, He, Jesus, strictly charged them to tell no one about Him. And he, and people will ask, well, well, why not? You think Jesus wants the publicity? Well, remember there was a point at which they tried to take Jesus and make Him king. But again, His time had not yet come. Jesus had a specific time that He was going to die. And of course, we know when that time is. It was at, the, it was at Passover because He was the Lamb of God. All those Old Testament feasts uh, really portray uh, things about the Lord. Jesus. Uh, he strictly charged them to tell no one about Him. And He began to teach them. Here, here's where we were headed. I, I almost got sidetracked. Didn't I? And He began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And He said this plainly. It was unambiguous now. This is, this is where we're going, guys. This is the one watershed of Jesus' public ministry. And of course, it's at this point that now, now Peter, this time he's going to open his mouth again, and this time it is to swap feet. Because you remember Peter says, oh no, no, you, you can't do that. That's, that's a wrong thing to do. You have to wonder what the, you know, was it, was Peter's motivation the fact that he loved Jesus so much, or was it that he had, he had invested these years, a couple of years in, uh, in following Jesus, and now th this is no time Time to leave the team, uh, and at this point, it's a little hard to say. But anyway, P 
Peter uh, makes a comment, no, you, you can't do that. And that's at that point, remember, Jesus rebuked him. He said, get behind me, Satan. You, you, don't, you really just don't realize this is what is going to happen. I'm going to suffer. I'm going to be rejected. I'm going to be killed. And then I'm going to rise again on the third day. And, it, and again, notice it says he said that very plainly. I want to look at some other texts. I put these in your notes. They're on the second page of your notes if you're, if you're following along. And let's just look at some of these texts because it really points out the clarity of Jesus' purpose. Jesus, uh, you know, at one point in the Gospels it says He set His face like a flint to go to Jerusalem. Well, that's when, you know, the, 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 the correct Passover was coming up and this was the one at which He would die at 3 o'clock in the afternoon at the very same time that all the Passover lambs would be slain that God's Passover lamb would die at that time. So, but before that, we even before that, we see the clarity of His purpose. Uh, notice Mark chapter 9. It says, They went on from there and passed through Galilee. And He didn't want anyone to know, for He was teaching His disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill Him. And when he is killed, after three days, he will rise. But they didn't understand the saying and were afraid to ask him. Notice the passage from John chapter 7. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of booze, that was feast of tabernacles, that was a, uh, remember that's a, uh, a fall feast that would take place oh um, in the late part of September or the early part of October is when that would occur. It says, uh, the Jews' feast of booze was at hand, so his brothers said to him, leave here and go to Judea. Show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him. This, this is his half-brothers. Remember, Jesus had half-brothers and half-sisters. They, uh, they all had the same mom, but of course Jesus' dad was God the Father, whereas uh, uh, Joseph was the, the dad of all of these others. They didn't believe him. Incidentally, remember, James uh, uh, was one of his half-brothers. Now, not James, the brother of John, but a different James. But that James came to be the uh, sort of the spokesman for the early church because eventually he did come to believe in, in his half-brother, the Lord Jesus. Uh, for even his brothers believed, uh, for not even his brothers believed in him. Jesus said to them, "My time has not yet come." Notice again, he's a clarity in his purpose. But your time's always here. The world hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I'm not going up to this feast for my time has not yet fully come. See, and this time he adds the word fully. My time has not yet fully come. I'm moving toward that time. I'm pressing toward that time. But nothing is going to uh, uh, get me to the get me to the cross prior to the time that I'm supposed to go, and nothing is going to delay that as well. 
Uh, John chapter 7, verse 30. So they were seeking to arrest Him, but no one laid a hand on Him because His hour had not yet come. John chapter 8, Jesus answered, You know neither me nor my Father. He's, in this passage, He's having a discussion with the scribes and Pharisees. If you knew me, you'd know my Father also. These words He spoke in the treasury, but no one arrested Him because His hour had not yet come. And in Luke 12, he says, I have a baptism to be baptized with. Now, he's not talking about in the River Jordan by John. That happened, that's happened uh, sometime prior to this. I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. So as he got closer, uh, remember that this, this had to be a... a, a, a terrible kind of thing that Jesus was facing, not only because of the suffering, physical suffering that it would entail, but more so because of the spiritual suffering. Because remember, Jesus knew the Scriptures, and in fact, one of the things that He said from the cross is, uh, My God, my God, why have You forsaken Me? Because for the first time in all of eternity, and first time ever, the Father had turned His back on the Son because he he would not look upon sin because the sin of all of God's people had been placed on Jesus and he had become the sin offering and Jesus knew he was facing that that that's one of the reasons when he prayed in the garden father if if there's another way take this cup from me nevertheless whatever your will is that's what I want to do and of course he did then Mark chapter 10, verse 32 and following, it says, As they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them, and they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, He began to tell them what was to happen to Him, saying, See, we're going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn Him to death and deliver Him over to the Gentiles, and they will mock Him and spit on Him and flog Him and kill Him. And after three days... He will arise. Talking about Himself, that I will arise. So here is those those final moments as He's making that final journey toward Jerusalem, uh, toward that final Passover when He, the Passover Lamb, would give His life as a ransom for many. And here we see the uh, in this in this final section uh, the time at hand uh, when the time was at hand. Uh, notice the uh, intent of the uh, Sanhedrin wanted to eliminate the problem. In fact, when Jesus was there, remember now again, and 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 it's important to remember this. That Jesus generally was uh, was was pretty popular among people up in Galilee, in particular. That's where he did most of his miracles. Now, of course, he did some down south, um, especially around the temple area. But most of his temples and the feeding of the five thousand and the four thousand and all of those things that all happened up north in Galilee. Well, remember at the feast of Passover, you've got all these all these pilgrims who are coming in from all over the place. And so they're all gathering in Jerusalem and it did must have been like six flags. Uh, just people everywhere. 
And uh, and this, of course, uh, Passover, of course, occurs in uh, in late March to early April. It it corresponds and should correspond to uh, around the time of uh, that we celebrate Easter. So the the. Jews, the Jewish hierarchy, the Jewish religious leaders wanted to get rid of Jesus. But with this whole crowd there, there were a lot of people who really were, were like Jesus. In fact, some of them had said, well, we need to make him king. And of course, the reason, the reason that they wanted that was because he was providing free food and doing miracles and stuff like that. Uh, many of them were not uh, all that interested in committing their lives to him. But in John chapter 12... Uh, and this is uh, this is after the incident. Remember, Jesus had come south he, toward Jerusalem. It was getting time for that 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 Passover where he would die. He crossed over uh, the Jordan River and was doing some ministry over there. And that's when he got word that uh, from Mary and Martha that Lazarus was sick, and uh, he delayed his going. And then finally got over to Bethany, which is just a few miles from Jerusalem, about four or five miles from Jerusalem. Uh, went over there and um, in fact remember Thomas said we don't need to be going over there because you know they don't like you over there and Jesus was determined to go and Thomas' response was well let us go die with him Uh, just real positive kind of fellow but anyway they got over there and Jesus uh, miraculously raised Lazarus from the dead. Well, that boy, that really stirred things up because, and again, you've got all these pilgrims who are beginning to come in because uh, many of them come from great distances. So I guess it's hard to judge your time. But anyway, uh, in John chapter twelve, verse nine and following, it says, "When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead." So again, see, this is just exciting. Man, life, can you believe that guy's here? And I sure want to see Lazarus. I've got some questions I want to ask old Lazarus about what, what was it like after you died? You, are you sure you were really dead? Just that kind of, almost a carnival kind of atmosphere. But then look at that last sentence, verse 10. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well. Listen, these people hated Jesus and they wanted to get get rid of any kind of evidence that they could. But again, they realized that there was a problem. And that is there were a lot of people who were gathering in Jerusalem who really liked Jesus. Or at least liked the stuff that He was doing and the stuff that He provided. And in Mark chapter 14 it says, It was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest Him by stealth and kill Him for they said not during the feast so see they want it remember Passover is is also called the day of preparation and then the next seven days after that that's the feast of unleavened bread part of the day of preparation was you got all the the, the leaven the, the yeast stuff out of your house and you would uh, you would you know prepare the lamb but it says, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. Well, this is the very feast, this is the very time, this is the very Passover that Jesus is going to die. This, this is the appointed time. 
Now, do you think that even though they say, well, we're going to postpone it, we're going to put this off because we don't want to create any problems, Jesus is not going to let them put it off. And notice some of these passages. John chapter 12, verse 27. Now is my soul troubled, Jesus said. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. Notice notice the difference. Early on in the ministry, my time has not yet come. My hour has not yet come. My hour has not fully come. Now what shall I say? Father, deliver me from this hour. My hour, this, for this purpose, I have come to this hour. John 13, now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that His hour had come to depart out of this world, there's no doubt in the mind of Jesus what what His objective is. Matthew chapter 26, then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane. This is uh, <clears throat> this is after their uh, uh, time in the upper room where they uh, have the last supper together with the disciples. And He said to His disciples, Sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with Him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, that would be James and John, He began to be sorrowful and troubled. And then He said to them, My soul is very sorrowful even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. He knew that his hour had come. And then in John chapter 17, we see Jesus lifting up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. This is, this is when Jesus prays His high priestly prayer. He says, Father, the hour has come. Glorify Your Son that the Son may glorify You since You have given Him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom You have given Him. And remember when they came to arrest Jesus, Peter had uh, had brought a sword along with him. Now remember, Peter's background is that of a fisherman, so he he was not real. He he was more skilled with a net than he was with a sword. And it says, uh, uh, I remember what happened is when they came up to arrest him, Peter whipped out that sword and tried to just cut a guy's head off, but hit him a glancing blow. The fellow's named Malchus. He was one of the servants of the one of the chief priests. And he cut the guy's ear off. And uh, Jesus took the ear and reattached it to the guy. I mean, you would think that would give everybody second thoughts, but obviously it didn't because it was his time. And uh, Jesus said to Peter, Put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? Notice again, His commitment to the mission. His commitment to the Father. The cross was always central in the mind of Jesus from the time He knew anything about the Scriptures. As He read the Scriptures, I'm sure that the Spirit of God revealed to Him, this, this is your mission. This is why you are here. And certainly we saw that in the early days even of His infancy when He was incapable 
capable because of his infancy of knowing such things, but the people who were around him uh, were uh, were aware through the Spirit of God that 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 was uh, that that was why he was here. But notice this is a this was the predetermined plan. This was the predetermined time uh, that God intended for this to happen. In Matthew chapter twenty six, it says when Jesus finished all these sayings, he said to his disciples, "You." know that after two days the Passover is coming and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. And Peter remembered that and after all of his denials and then Peter's restoration and then uh, days later on the day of Pentecost, uh, that would be 50 days after the Passover. The uh, it says, uh, remember, uh, after the uh, the Spirit came and just a tremendous uh, outbreak uh, throughout the city in Jerusalem and people from all over the place who were there for the for the again for the Feast of Pentecost. The city was full. All of a sudden, these people from all these foreign lands were hearing uh, the praises for God through the. Uh, uh, through the languages that these disciples were speaking, that these 120 uh, were speaking, they had never learned these foreign languages, but they were speaking the the, the works and the praise toward God. And people said, "What in the world does this mean?" And it was at that point that Peter stood up and he began to preach. And in the context of his sermon, he said this on his sermon on the day of Pentecost, he said in Acts 2.23, This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. And a couple of chapters later in Acts, in Acts chapter 4, when Peter and John had been arrested at least once already for preaching the gospel, uh, and and the, the 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 leadership, the the religious, the Jewish religion, religious leadership would say, "You guys need to shut up. You're just stirring up all kind of trouble." And uh, Peter's and they, and they and Peter and John accounted uh, themselves uh, uh, accounted it all joy that they were uh, that they were counted worthy to suffer for the name of the Lord. But in praying, um, in Peter's prayer, he says this. He says, "Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city, Jerusalem, to conspire against your holy." servant Jesus whom you anointed they did what your power and your will had decided beforehand should happen notice you've got human sinfulness and the divine plan all there it's 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 human responsibility you are responsible for what you did for putting the son of god to death but when you did it it was all according to the divine plan and it's amazing when you look at this because you see Jesus' perspective on his own death. He knew he was going to die. He knew that his death would be a violent death and yet at the same time a purposeful death for he would be dying a sacrificial death. He knew that his death was inevitable uh, for a number of reasons. Uh, it was obvious that it was, it was coming to a head because of the hostility of all the Jewish religious leaders. It's 
certainly was uh, was inevitable because of what the scriptures revealed about the Messiah. I remember, we talked about that in our last session about the prophetic connection, and he knew it was inevitable because it was his own deliberate choice. His choice was to do the Father's will, and the Father's will was for him to lay down his life. The Father's will was for him to be not to be stoned to death, but to be attached to a tree, to a cross. And the purpose of that was because anyone who was hung on a tree was considered to be cursed. And Jesus bore the curse for all of His people. He bore our sin. He bore the curse of the sin. And that's why through faith in Christ, God imputes to us the very righteousness of His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, praise be to God. Well, we got just a few minutes left, so let's look at the conclusion and um, and try to draw a little bit more application if we can. Notice uh, that Jesus clearly saw that His sacrificial death uh, was the whole purpose of His incarnation. Uh, his own specific predictions about His rejection and suffering and death and resurrection, in addition to all of the illusions that He made, uh, my hour, for example, my hour has not yet come, all of those things bear witness to the fact that without a doubt, He foresaw the moment and the method of His coming death. So this was not a surprise to Jesus in any way. Jesus also saw His sacrificial death as an absolute necessity for the salvation of sinners. Was there any other way? No, there was no other way. He said, well, why, why couldn't God just say, alright, I just forgive you. And let, let's, let's spare my son and I'm just, I'm just going to declare I forgive you. Well, God can't do that. And the re- you said, well, God can do whatever He wants to. Well, no, uh, God cannot uh, do things that are contrary to His nature. And His, His nature is that of righteousness and holiness and justice. How would it be just to let sinners just let them off the hook? You can't do that because if He did, then He would no longer be holy and righteous and just. So what He's done by placing all of the sins of all of His people on the Lord Jesus and then pouring out His wrath on Him, in doing so, He's, he's, he's taken the curse. Jesus has taken the curse. Jesus has taken the penalty for sin so that God remains just. He has poured out His wrath for this sin. But He's also justifier. He is the one who declares us righteous through faith, through our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And incidentally, that faith that we express in Christ, that repentance that we express toward God, those both are gifts that God gives us. We cannot believe, we cannot repent unless God enables us to do so. But he saw it as a necessity for the salvation of sinners. Uh, Jesus often expressed the requirement of his death. The Son of Man must be killed. And he was determined to fulfill the messianic passages of Scripture in obedience to his Father's will. Notice uh, in his uh, one of his... Uh, uh, post-resurrection appearances there that, in fact, it was on Resurrection Sunday night 
Remember there were the two disciples who were uh, headed toward Emmaus. They had left Jerusalem. They were very disappointed because it just things just didn't hadn't seemed to work out just exactly right. And Jesus um, hides his identity and joins them on their journey. And then later on, uh, as they as they were talking. Um, Jesus said, "What is this all about?" Well, we there was this guy Jesus of Nazareth, and we we had hoped that he would he was he would be the one, and you know he he's been crucified, and there's some people who who said that you know he was raised from the dead, but we we haven't seen any anything about that. And Jesus' response at that point says this, and again, this is post-resurrection. And He, Jesus, said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into His glory? See, Jesus, Jesus as well expressed the necessity of being killed and being raised from the dead because that would fulfill His mission. It would fulfill the Old Testament prophecies. The uh, the writer of Hebrews says this in Hebrews chapter ten, and this is written even later. This is written somewhere between sixty and seventy A.D., probably close to about sixty seven or sixty eight. Uh, the temple was still standing at the time, so the sacrifices were still going on, in spite of the fact that there was no need for any sacrifice because the ultimate sacrifice in Christ had already been made. But. <clears throat> But in uh, Hebrews chapter 10 it says, the law, talking about the Mosaic law, the, uh, the Old Covenant, the law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. For this reason, it, the law, can never by the same sacrifices repeated endlessly year after year make perfect those who draw near to worship. If it could, would they have not stopped being offered? For the worshipers would have been cleansed once for all and would no longer have felt guilty for their sins. But those sacrifices are an annual reminder of sins because it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Therefore, when Christ came into the world, He said, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you prepared for Me. Why did Jesus need a body? Because He had to die. With burnt offerings and sin offerings, you were not pleased. Then I said, Here I am. It's written about me in the scroll. I have come to do your will, O God. He sets aside the first, that is the first covenant, to establish the second, the new covenant. And by that will, we believers have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. There's no more sacrifice. And then he, the writer of Hebrews, and this is not in your notes, but the writer of Hebrews followed this with a quote from Jeremiah 31, which has to do with the, uh, with the coming of the new covenant, which of course was cut in Jesus' blood. But he says of, of our sins, he said, Your sins I will remember no more. 
I will not call them to mind. You will not be held accountable for those sins. Why? Because they've already been punished in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. God doesn't punish uh, if I commit this sin and and Christ has already paid for it, God's not going to punish me for it because it's already been punished. That would be like uh, that'd be like going to a, a, a restaurant, for example, to use a. Uh, well, this, this is a. Uh, it's probably not the best example, but it is an example. Let's say a bunch of us, after Bible study, decided to go over here to uh, to the to the deli to the restaurant, and I was uh, I was feeling real uh, uh, gracious that day, and I said, "Well, I'll just uh, I'll just buy everybody's uh, lunch today," and so all of you ordered steaks, and and so uh, anyway, I, I then I realized all of a sudden that uh, that I had an appointment and I had to leave. Early. Early. And I said, "Listen, you guys don't need to leave. You just you just stay here and uh, enjoy yourselves. I've, I've got to go on. I've got this meeting that I've got to go to. And so on the way out, I pay the entire bill, tip and everything. Take care of it all. And so most of you just kind of begin to uh, meander your way out as the as the lunch crowd goes. But a couple of you hang around for a while, and you maybe been drinking coffee and sitting there for another hour or so talking about stuff." And then it's time for you to leave, and as you start to go out, the the, the person at the the cashier says, "Whoa, wait a minute! You can't you can't leave without paying." Now, if they make you pay, is that just? No. Why? Because it's already been paid for. God doesn't make us pay. Now, obviously, when we sin, there are consequences to our sin, but that's not punishment. That's chastening. But isn't it great that God remembers our sin no more? And then finally, and we've got to quit now, the believer in Christ is to live a life of purpose. That is not a purpose-driven life, but a Spirit-led life. That's our life of purpose. It's not to be purpose-driven. Jesus wasn't purpose-driven. He had the purpose of His Father in mind. But He was led by the Spirit. And that's what we're supposed to do. A common, you know, it says in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, most of us can quote verses 8 and 9, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it's the gift of God, not as a result of works that no one should boast. But what about verse 10? For we are His workmanship, we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. God has a purpose for us. He has a plan for our lives. And first of all, the common purpose that we all have is a life that honors and glorifies God. What is the chief end of man? Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever, the old Westminster Shorter Catechism says. And as you and I follow God's leading, He'll begin to reveal His unique purpose for each one of us. Psalm 119, verse 105 says, Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. God's Word is not like a halogen beam that shows us what's down the road, you know, 500 yards. If, you, if you've got a halogen beam, it'll go that far. But it's like a Coleman lantern. You know, we take a step 
And there's enough light to see where the next step is. And there's enough light, then when we take that step, there's another, enough light to see where the next step. We may be, we may be standing close to a precipice somewhere on, a, on the, either on our right side or our left side and not even realize that it's there. But as long as we can see where the next footfall goes, we can take that next step. We follow His leading. Be God's man or God's woman in God's place doing God's will in God's way and do it for the glory of God. Praise be to God. Let's pray. You've been listening to Focus on Truth, the Bible teaching ministry of Chuck Bradshaw. Focus on Truth is a non-denominational evangelical Christian ministry to the marketplace. Your gifts to Focus on Truth are tax deductible. For a free copy of our monthly newsletter, Glimpses of Truth, For other information about the ministry, write to Focus on Truth, Box 5367, Columbus, Georgia, 31906.